0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. This uh, episode we're going to be discussing the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. Um, There was a report, or some people calling it the Sewell Report. So um, we have managed to uh, throw together, not we, actually, Elaine, I will give you your props. Elaine, you've seen her on our show twice before. She was like, you are got to do a Black Woman's Hour about this. And she threw together a panel. That would have been a dream for me anyway. So I'm amazed. And thank you guys for joining us um, at such short notice. Um, so Elaine, I'll let you introduce yourself first.
1: OK. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Elaine Adepoigu. And I'm a digital marketer and very much a Black woman. So that's why I'm here today.
2: <laughs> and Louise? Okay, I'm uh, Dr. Louise Owusu-Kwarteng. I'm an associate professor in sociology at the University of Greenwich, and I'm a very very proud black British African woman as well.
3: (laughs) And Funke? Hi ladies, Uh, hello everyone who's listening. Um, My name is Funke Abimbola. I've had multiple careers actually. I started off as a solicitor, um, and then I moved into the global pharmaceutical industry. But I think the reason why I'm here is because of the work I've done around diversity, specifically within the, the legal profession. I have a lot to say about this report. So I've been involved in um, a number of different commissions in the past as well, and I'll bring some of that into our discussion, but I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Were you asked um, to, to
0: participate in this discussion, this uh, commission
3: at all? So I was approached about this, um, but I was really concerned about the um, actual intention behind uh, this report. Uh, and I was involved in David Lammy's review. So, in terms of direct comparison, the terms of reference, which is the briefing that you're given as to why, you know, why are we doing this? What, what is a, what's a question we want answered, really? But for, for David's review, absolutely spot on. You know, Labour MP commissioned by a Tory Prime Minister, amazing. I mean, you know, that just shows genuine intent. Uh, it was looking at the criminal justice system and the fact that, as we all know, if you're minority ethnic, you're overrepresented at every single stage uh, of the process from stop and search and on and on and on. So I, I could see that it had real teeth. And I ran a various workshops and met ex-offenders, you know, got really re- involved. And most of the recommendations were then um, backed by the government. So this is an opposition MP that's doing all of this. I got involved because I could see that that it was genuine. I could see that it was going to be authentic. The concern I had about this one was I wasn't convinced of that at all. Mm. A lot of time and effort goes into these things as well. You know, it's on top of the day job, it's a lot of extra hours. Mm. Um, And you need to be able to justify that, you know, in and of itself. I mean, I'm a mom, I've got an 18 year old son who's doing A-levels. You know, I've got things that I need to be prioritizing. And I just wasn't convinced that there was genuine intent behind this uh, commission. And and I think it was set up uh, out of panic because of Black Lives Matter. And the government needed to be seen to be doing something. Um, But I'm not entirely surprised by by the findings, if I'm honest. I'm very disappointed um, by them. Yeah, Really disappointed. Uh,
2: Louise, have you looked into the report at all? Right I I mean I know it came out this morning I've been teaching for the past couple of hours but you know like I've had one or two sort of conversations with with my cousin and just just you know like skimmed over certain parts of it and I'm I I, it's very interesting because I had to run to the shops this morning and then I saw the deadline the headline of the Daily Mail and it was just basically saying that you know basic something along with you know the lines of Britain's great race discovery something like that and I just thought to myself you know what this is glossing over the. this is just really kind of like trying to downplay the problems that are going on so it's easy it's just to make it look like okay well we've done something we've investigated it I felt it was very reactive and then it's just that thing like look 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 oh there's no problem after all you know so that was the vibe I got from it and stuff I mean I do want to go into it in more depth because I you know for my own thing but I also want to use it for my teaching as well. So, yeah.
0: yeah. I think I kind of found. I saw the headlines. I saw what the things were, and I just put on Real Housewives of Atlanta. Elaine, um, you've uh, been you've read into it, no? Because honestly, I make light of it. But I there's been so much gaslighting over the past oh. five six years when it comes to the media and the press, which is the reason why I started this platform in the first place. That I honestly. Don't think there's anything wrong. Like you said, you want to use it in your lecturing. This is your background. This is what I will glance through it eventually. But at this point in time, I think sometimes to protect your own mental health. And I often comment on race and you know, social, you know, sociological things and you know, diversity. I give diversity talks and stuff. And I just thought, like you said, it came out and it was like it. It, it said to me, it was almost like. The police like when the police kill someone we investigate ourselves and we're innocent thank you bye and that's how it felt so i just thought for goodness sake so but mm-hmm. elaine i know that um like two points i want to pick up with you is uh, first of all that you've read it in in depth haven't you you've 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 read it, and but also you know about government spin and headlines and picking out certain parts and the way yeah. it's being presented to people do you want to
1: Yeah, so um, the first thing that I want to say is that, um, as Ava's um, correctly said, my first part of my career, I spent significant time within the civil service working in government communications, and I know how reports and things are put out, and also how you would have to brief the, um, how you would create the briefing that the press office would Put out towards all the journalists. And so one thing that is actually very striking and alarming is that the way the story's been trailed all day, and probably from last night up until the time that the report was actually published um, was for me quite disconcerting. I think headlining and having like, having from breakfast morning TV all the way up to 11.30 talking about how. Britain is now being seen as a model of racial equality. So, the actual words were a model of racial equality in the world, is, um, I I think, quite disingenuous, even to what's actually contained within the report itself. Mm -hmm. Because if that was the case from the report, that would mean that it would not have had to have been 285 pages. And it also means that they wouldn't have had to have 24 recommendations within the report. Because if we are a model, that means that we're doing things okay. But when you actually start to look within the recommendations, it's not actually saying that at all. It talks about racial uh, racial disparity within the health service. It talks about how they're looking to, they're going to be setting up things to look at racial disparities there. It talks about um, the fact that from Look, when it comes to the sentencing in relation and charging and sentencing in relation to possession of Class B drugs, that there's a, disproportion, a disproportionate amount of Black people who are arrested, charged, and imprisoned because of it. The report says that in the first twenty in the twenty-four recommendations. So, if the report writers believe that and they're saying we've got to look at that into a bit more detail. And we know that class, we know that when it comes to things like the county lines and all of the other things that come towards drug possession, drugs, um, the drug penalties as that black people are more harmed compared to the white middle and upper classes who may actually take more of these drugs than black people do, um, then that's a racial disparity. And I think I'm not an academic. I'm not a lawyer. I did do a law degree. I have worked in the home office, but I and I worked in policy. But it's not, but it's not within that space. Which, I, well, I'll just say here now, I work in digital marketing because those are my previous lives. Um, but it's quite disturbing and quite alarming how it has been briefed. I yeah. think that if they if they had wanted to give true reflection of what was in the report they wouldn't have that line about being a model of racial equality would not have even been included into into the lines to take the briefing the elephant traps because it's a 24 recommendations and they are and there are some i think that everybody here will um would probably agree or disagree and the other thing that I didn't like is out of the 24 recommendations the last thing that they did which we have um we all knew before that they've now recommended is that BAME should be taken out of the language um but we've been saying this for um quite a while now and um yeah so that's why I think it's a bit um disingenuous and i'm sorry i'm stumbling over my words but
0: no it's absolutely clear what you're saying completely i mean Bain being taken out what worried me when i saw that hitting the headlines and stuff it was like we've taken away Bain. like we've done something now so what do we do but from care because you work in this area before i bring louise in, quickly want to ask you um when a report like this is done what is the real-life impact, or what do you think in this case, the real-life impact for our day-to-day lives? What do you think will change? What do you think will happen?
3: So uh, with this particular report, I don't see a great deal happening at at central government um, level uh, in and of itself. So the Lannery Review, which is my direct comparison, was very different because the intention was different. And a lot of recommendations were taken up and, you know, the only thing they didn't agree to do was put in diversity for judges, which was gonna be very difficult to do. But everything else was, you know, everything's being, being done by the Ministry of Justice. Now, with this one, given the intent wasn't genuine in the first place, and it was a reactive report, very little uh, commitment, you know, it's very little commitment from central government. So where the change will come is from platforms like this. You know, I'm going to be sharing this across my network uh, the work I do uh, with corporate so all my work that I do around diversity and inclusion is in the corporate world and I do it with global organizations large law firms in problematic regions like. Europe, Middle East and Africa and places like that, where it's more about ethnicity than race, but essentially overcoming the challenges is essentially the same thing, you know, really the, the blueprint so that's where I see the change happening it's from activists. And often you need an outrageous report finding like this to ignite that. So many people are upset about this. There's so many discussions happening. There's so much pressure on MPs, and I'm going to be writing to my MP about this. My son's probably going to write as well, because he's now voting age. So that's where the change will come from. But yeah. what, what? I mean, so much of this upsets me that I don't even—I don't even know if we have enough time to unpick. <laughs> You know, it's (laughs) unreal, honestly, unbelievable.
0: I'm just going to quickly bring Louise in because I just keep seeing you nodding and nodding, (laughs) and like, so I can see we're all very passionate about the whole thing. So, what
2: are your feelings? Okay, so I mean, like Elaine, I've worked in policy, so that was sort of my hat before I started doing my PhD, and I worked in the home office as well for a year. And one of the things I observed about policy making was that there was an awful lot of money spent on specific things my my area was kind of like community cohesion but very little changed at the ground level and my worry about that the way that it was done I always said this I think that you know you need to be talking to the people that the policies affect, but I feel like you know I don't know who was involved in this review, Mm -hmm. but in my opinion. I don't feel like you know, they had a proper grasp of what is really going on at the grassroots because I think you've got to be involving them. I mean, when I did my master's in policy, it was talking about grassroots and um, bottom of policy making. That's what should have felt happened here. My concern is that like, sometimes, a bit like what happened with the Black Lives Matter last year, there was a lot of performativity because mm-hmm. you're just saying, okay, we're going to make it it's reactive. It's just like, oh my gosh, this has happened, blah, blah, blah. So we've got to do this, we've got to do this. But with actually, with it's very surface level, it's very reactive, and it's very performative. You're putting out statements out here. You spent God knows how much doing that report, but really, nothing is going to, well, at, at that level, at a government level, nothing is going to change. And frankly, sometimes I don't always think that it's going to be in the interest of the people, you know, I don't think it's going to be in the interest of the people that this report was supposed to be written so, you know, I have to agree with Funke here in the sense that it is going to come from the bottom. And as I said to my students, it's always going to come also the younger generations as well, because I feel like there's so much more like, you know, no, this, this just isn't going to run. Do you know what I mean? So they, they, they're they more vociferous about these things. So I do think it's going to change from the bottom up. And I think it's about everyone challenging it. Frankly. I mean, Louise, you uh,
0: mentioned some of the names involved. I mean, what I saw, that's why I just thought absolutely not. The names that I saw were Tony Sewell, um, Kemi. Um, what's her last name again? I do not. Yeah, she's she's just become so notorious now that we on this show we just like pretty tell Kemi like we just know her as one name. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, and also who was the last name that I saw on it, it was
1: Kemi, um, Doctor Tony Sewell, and so and I believe. Name? So I believe that Tony Sewell was appointed. I I can't can't remember the name of the person who appointed him and they were two people who have said that they don't really... yes, someone Merza. Manura
3: Merza.
0: That's right, that's right and when I saw those names I thought uh uh-oh, uh-oh, because we have talked about on the show before about you know how prominent um, Black and Asian people within the Tory party and stuff are used to come along, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. And I said like one of the most worrying things I saw was in parliament when they were discussing um, having sort of black history on the curriculum. It was worrying because you saw Kemi and, oh uh, gosh, what is his name begins with B. I'm oh, sorry, what's wrong with me today? Bim, 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 bim the guy from Eton. <laughs> a young black guy from Eton. I know in he's the MP Harpenden. Sorry? Bim that's right, that's right. So it was, but then you saw them and then they were arguing against Dawn Butler. And I just thought, look at this. This is parliament. These are all black people talking and you've got this side going, we don't need that. And Bim going, I went to Eton. I feel so proud to go to Eton. And then you have the other side going, get real. And I just thought, there's no white faces in this. They really have, this is divide and conquer. In action, like this is it personified. So I was worried when I saw the names that, that were involved in it as well. And that just kind of put me off. Um, Elaine, you were going to say sorry. Yes, yeah, to...
1: so I was going to say, but um, what I learnt today when I was doing my little digging around since 11.30, so for those watching, it's now 2.30, so the report was published three hours ago, and I'm not a journalist, was that um, I wasn't sure if you were aware that they also had a public consultation that they put out for to contribute towards this. Yeah. And so did anybody actually respond to the public consultation? So it, um, it was out from October to November, I believe, um, last year. I know,
2: I think, I, I'm i not going to lie, I think I started it. I know my sister did it and, and I think my nephew did it as well. and that. But yeah, I, I know quite a few people did. I started and I just didn't finish and that was completely my bad. But I mean, it's interesting you say that because it would have been very interesting to see whether the you know, like whether what, what we said in the consultation really matches up against
1: the report. Yeah. And that, that's the reason I was um, asking because I've been involved in a consultation before and I know that, um, as in from the inside, and when it came to doing the consultation, you did actually res- publish the responses as well. So it'll be interesting to see if they'll do that here um, of their own volition rather than maybe having to ask an FOI request because all the information is, all the information should be there and readily available, but there were a lot of stakeholders who were involved um, up and down the country, Um, but it just seems that, especially when I'm thinking that even within my lifetime of being on this planet, the amount of race relations consultations that have taken place. That to get to the 31st of March 2021, when Parliament's in recess, so they can't even question the Prime Minister on it today. Um that you've had the Lamy report, as you've said, they had the racial disparities in terms of COVID from last year. Mm-hmm. They had for me the watershed moment that when I did my um, and I did my law degree, um, which was the McPherson report, which actually introduced the term institutional racism. And that now, twenty years later, people are saying institutional racism doesn't really exist. It doesn't make any sense.
0: That's what I was wondering as well, because I mean, they have the police themselves and certain bodies have admitted they're institutionally racist. Like you, I remember all these reports. There was yeah. Scarwell before that, wasn't there? Yeah. It? yeah. And just go, they just. It's, you know, and that's why I'm just like, when Keir Starmer goes, we'll, we'll do a report. It's like, how many of these things do you want to do before there's any kind of action? And I think because we have such a right-wing Tory government at the moment, and because we have a really right-wing Home Secretary at the moment, um, and Labour, they have such a huge majority. Um, I kind of, what would you say to um, Funke, Like, what would you say to people who feel like I feel like I feel powerless right now? Because you've even got a Labour, even though they're in a minority. I mean, we had Clive Lewis and Nadia Whittam on this show last week, and we were like, basically, you know, I was saying like, what did we do when you guys are a minority within your own party? Like, the most of Labour has gone pretty, you know, centrist, if you want to call it, or almost, you know, centre-right. What do we do in our day-to-day lives to, you know, how are we meant to feel? Not about even action, because before action, you have to get over your feelings, do you know what I mean? Like you have to, have you got any recommendations?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, writing to your MP is very powerful. Even if you have a Tory MP, which thankfully we we don't, where I live, we got rid of ours and we've got a fantastic Lib Dem MP here. Um, But writing to MP does make a real difference. You know, it, it really does, a deluge of letters, um, it helped a lot with what's happened with the exam cancellations, for example, you know, yeah. a lot of parents wrote in and that helped to shape the way that the, the grades are going to be assessed. That's one thing you can do. Something I'm working on with my son is getting young people to vote. Yeah. So, you know, not a lot of them are he, he's now 18. You know, he's he's going to be voting in his first uh, district council you know, elections shortly. It's so important for us to engage that younger demographic, because that's where I see incredible change happening, actually, and incredible things can happen before the next election. I still believe that, I still believe we've got enough time around that. I think educating people around what institutional racism actually means is also really key because Tony Sewell, I've read through his commentary, I saw an interview he gave to justify all of this, and he said that it's become a term that's a catch-all phrase to cover microaggressions and so on, I thought, hold on a second, when I run my race awareness programs, my corporate clients, and I define the different levels of racism, how am I defining institutional racism? And this is what it actually is, right? It's discriminatory treatment policies and practices within organizations and institutions. So it goes beyond just the policies. You know, what the government would have us believe is that because all these organizations have policies, yeah, you can point to a policy that says there's equal opportunities There's this, There's that. But what are the outcomes? If the outcomes don't match up with that, then it isn't a policy that actually, there must be discrimination in there and it's a discriminatory treatment. So when you look at it that way, of course there's got to be institutional racism. If you look at the attainment gap um, for, for, for minority ethnic students at university, if you look at name discrimination, the fact that you can't get statistically you're less likely to get a good job. So focusing on white working class boys and saying they don't do well at school. Well, if they go on to get a degree, they're far more likely then to get a better job than the very minority ethnic students that you're saying are doing so well in school now. You've got to track this through to the ultimate outcome. And that's what they haven't done. They can't just focus on policy, which I think is what they've tried to do here. They've not looked enough at the outcomes. And that's where this really, really falls short.
0: Yeah, I know you're telling the truth about um, uh, the name thing, for instance. Um, there's a couple of things I have to say on that. Um, I do diversity talks as well in um, going to companies and do like, I think they sometimes want it done with a bit of humour or, you know, so I do those. But a woman told me blatantly, like I make it a safe space, say whatever. She said I put them in the bin. When I see um, ethnic minority names, I put them in the bin. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Why?" And she said, "I don't want to embarrass them or me if I can't say their name right." Oh, that's really and then lovely. she really yeah. thought she was coming from a place of being helpful. Like, yes. oh well, I don't want to, be, you know, difficult. I said. Is it more difficult to mispronounce a name, or is it more difficult to not be able to pay your bills because you cannot get a job because people like you have put their CV in the bin? And then the second thing I think about that, which is being a knock on effect to our communities, is my friend, um, she's from um, Zambia, and her and her husband deliberately chose English names. And um, I was like, no, because my son's like half Nigerian, he has got an African name because I don't want any surprises. It's like, you know exactly what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that and because I, me being of a Caribbean background as well, the name thing is important to me because we don't have them, we lost them. So for me to have a son who's got a heritage he can trace, like he's, uh, he's Yoruba, um, he, I gave him a, a, an African name. So, you know, these things have knock on effects which then eradicate parts of our culture because we are scared for our children and how they will cope, and Louise is a sociologist, so I'm going to bring you in here.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, so much, so much. So, I mean, back to um, Funke's point about, you know, focusing on the the policy. I mean, uh, one thing I teach my first years is about macro and and micro-analysis, right? And like, you know, policy is a really good example of kind of like macro-analysis, where you're just looking at the big things, but then you're not looking at the nuances at the bottom so these nuances are kind of like people's experiences which i think you've got to take into account and if you don't i mean you know in terms of the, I've, I've got a bit of an issue with that term sorry funke this is not you but the terminology attainment gap. i don't like it for many reasons but you know you have to look at the nuances within them what is going on what is going on in terms of people's experiences why are what how is this leading to kind of differences in terms of attainment one thing that you said just there about the name and you know the way that we because we want to fit into to fit into society to make life easier for ourselves, you know what I mean? It's it's all and the the, the way that it leads to displacement of who we are. It reminds me of I don't know if any of you have read Franz um White Skin, Black Skins, White Mask. Is there, have, you, have you read it? I'll be reading it. Read excerpts of it. I haven't read the whole thing. All right one of the one of the big premises here is that you know he talks about how as black people i mean he's talking about it through colonization but i believe that much of it kind of applies now in the sense that you know like we tend to lose ourselves we tend to displace our identities and you know you do it in lots of this lots of different ways that this manifests but i think that the name is a very good example of this whereby you know you are choosing english i mean i've, I've seen some Ghanaians do it where they try to kind of like anglicize their surnames i'm like what are you doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Keep it real, keep it real. But that is an example of that. And I think that is a very, I mean, it's it's all rooted in colonization, but like for some people, they now see this as a way of survival now in order to progress. And I just think, you know, like I think this is a very, very sad state of affairs. And if we're in society, we've got policies and stuff that is making people do that. It's, it's all kinds of wrong, I'm sorry
0: that's what you bring in Fannin and I'm sure it was him I don't know if he coined the phrase but he used cognitive dissonance Yes. yes and I wonder when I think about that and I see going sort of taking that what you've just said a little bit further is this is what if this is what Femi and Dr. Sewell and Pretty and everybody are doing to the point like I don't know if they genuinely don't see these things or they've decided we're just not we're not acknowledging it or to make our lives easier but obviously making their lives easier they're making our lives harder and i think we have got back to a point but now in this country instead of it coming out of white mouths it's coming out of black and brown mouths and Lane did post up something um from the foreword, the making of modern britain and i'm seeing words like you know phrases like negative calls to decolonize the curriculum um you know um say banning of white authors won't help or token expression so it's all this token oh it's negative to want that oh you want all these black authors on oh you know and 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 they put it in a way like they're we've asked for things like we haven't asked to ban white authors what Mm -hmm. we're asking for is perhaps our kids might not want to sit in an English lesson read Huckleberry Finn and hear the M word over and over again you know what I mean? Things like that. And then also taking it from a point of view and saying, well, you know, bringing back to what Louise has said, where you have to say like microaggressions and you are talking, but it's almost like they're saying, oh, don't ask for handouts. Don't ask us for any kind of favours. And it's deeply, deeply troubling to me. And um, Louise, I know you're dying to get back in there. I want to bring Elaine back in as yeah, well. I'm
1: going to say on and following on from the, um, the book conversation, Um, comment that you just made, Abba. Um, As an avid reader, as you know, um, I find it, I'm actually really perplexed why, I don't want to say decolonising the curriculum, but broadening the curriculum, if you're saying, if, if, okay, if you're taking some of these people's obsession with the British Empire, why wouldn't you want to broaden the curriculum to include all of the former people who were in the empire and show how great how you taught us how to read and write english and civilized us and this is the and this is the fruits of that your your enlightened labor obviously i'm not of that view alternatively if you're looking at about baking the links of the commonwealth and the fact that this is the reason why the commonwealth exists um, we decided that we're going to compete with the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Italians, the Dutch and as a result this has made the British society the rich society that it is today from a cultural perspective. This is the reason why tikka masala is now the national dish, this is the reason why I mean, Tony Sewell mentions one great example would be a dictionary or lexicon of well-known British words which are Indian in origin, which is quite in but you could flip it on, it on its head when you're learning English, language, that English is a language that is an amalgamation of all of the different influences. It's not just India, it's come from Greece, it's come from ancient Rome, it's come from India. Now, now when you're talking in London, like, we've got, well, not just in London, like, we've seen the influence of Jamaica on the English language. It doesn't mean that it's diminishing, but rather adding. You. You've got so many authors that you could talk about. So when we're learning about, when I did English Lit at school, to show how great Britain was and how racist America is, that's why we learned about Toni Morrison. We learned about Maya Angelou and we learned about um, Alice Walker, because those people experienced Racism. Um, Britain obviously didn't do racism. It's not a racist country, and we're nearly on our way to this post racial society. I mean, about, I mean, what is the slave trade? Because that's all racism is. But you could talk about the Chinua Achebes, you could talk about the A Quera Mars, you could talk about um, Sam Selvin and the Lonely Londoners. There are so many people that could be added to the literary canon. Why can't you have Sam Selvin next to James Joyce? Why is Ulysses more important than, I don't know, V.S. Um, Naipaul? There is so many people that, and and they are from the Commonwealth. And if you're going to have prime ministers who want to slap all over the wall and do all of this other stuff, these people are also contributors to the English literature. And you can go through from school all the way up to... Oxford or Cambridge, and never have read a book that has been written by anybody who's from the white Commonwealth. That's ridiculous. And to so say to decolonising, which I think is, as I said, the wrong word, but broadening it, broadening it, it doesn't mean doing away with Shakespeare. But why we have to le- learn so many Shakespeare plays, you could argue yes or no, but we've contributed so much. And I think that this report, um, potentially has undermined a lot of really good work and a lot of really good conversations. And I don't think people are going to read the recommendations. I don't think that um, like recommendation 13 actually talks about building social and cultural cultural capital in Richmond for all. Um, that to me from a cultural perspective is very important. It talks about the existing investigating what's causing the existing ethnic pay disparities. If people are now saying that racism doesn't exist in this way, unless you're called the N word or the P word, why would they be interested in looking at the causes behind the ethnic pay disparities? Yeah, Um, I
0: think you made um, good points there. And I like the way that you're saying broadening the curriculum, because I think there are certain phrases now that have been designed to put people's backs up, like decolonizing the way yeah. we've spoken about it on this show before, the way they've grabbed hold of the word, word woke, mm. and they've made that, you know, um, derogatory. And it's, it's um, bless you darling, it's my baby, please get tissue, um, <laughs> please. And uh, so basically they've, the way that they've um, kind of put it is we're now in the territory again, this is how I feel of them against us. So the way that you're saying that these authors could exist alongside each other, and you could speak, and they are from the Commonwealth and stuff. I think this is not happening right now. It really is them and us. And if you want this included, you don't really love Britain anymore. We've gone into this kind of horrible, ugly nationalism again. But I wanted to ask from Ke, um a quick question, because I want to come back to something you said earlier. You said you see, you think change is coming before the next election. and I've been, I don't know if the rest of you have been, I've been online at night and waking up three in the morning, checking my phone, looking at Bristol. Um, we've got some very good shows coming up, by the way. We are um, later on this week recording a show about protest. We have a historian who specializes in protest and we have a guy who um, is an expert on army protests, which I hadn't heard of before. So we're going to talk about that and then we are going to have Dr. Sean Sobers next week Speaking about Bristol as an area because I want to know why these people oh, come out no, no. first. <laughs> Bristol is a very, very like why is it seem to be a boiling point? I know it's like you know a slave town as they call it in the same way that Liverpool is. So we will that's just for future shows. So um, subscribe to our channel by the way so you can know when these shows are coming. So I'm seeing the Brighton protests for instance. I'm seeing a lot of young people who are out at that pro- at those protests. So is this what you mean when you're saying change is coming?
3: Definitely, and, and young people are really angry at the moment from all, um, from all class, you know, social class has no bearing because the COVID disruption to education has been a, a leveler for everyone. Even if you're more privileged and you have the access to technology and laptops and everything else, it's still an absolute pain that you haven't been able to go to school do your experiments for your chemistry level, as is the case with my son and so on. And we're from a privileged background. So you've got a group of very angry 16 to 18 year olds who feel very strongly that the government has just not even, what they've done in education is shocking. I mean, that's worthy of a show in itself. Yeah. Mm. So, and they are, I mean, they've got to do something with that anger, right? They can't just, you know, maintain it, it's unhealthy, and there's all sorts of mental health issues along with it. And a number of them are coming up to voting age. In fact, all of them by the next election, if you think about it, will be at voting age. Everyone who's been impacted by this whole COVID thing. Add that to those already at university who again have been disrupted and are trying to get, you know, refunds on tuition fees because they're learning online in their rooms or at home and this isn't what they signed up to. Yeah. That's where I see the real change. And that's a massive number of people. That's a huge population. You know, I've never done the numbers, but that's a massive part of the population that would normally not engage in voting, wouldn't even care about politics. But I think they're now realizing that complacency is not an option. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: You know what I mean? Like, we actually cannot allow this kind of thing. You know, the pandemic would have happened anyway. Yeah. but the way the plan of support and action around it has been so bad with this current government, I don't think any of them are going to forget this in a hurry, and that's where I feel and why I see real hope actually for the future. Yeah.
0: Louise, I want to ask you as a sociologist, mm. is there any um, period in history that you can draw a comparison to with this, with in terms of society being a, a tipping point? I'm thinking very much of um, you know, prior to Thatcher, when everything was kind of, you know, upside down, people weren't able to own their homes. It was, it was bins weren't blessed, baby. The, I swear she got for something. The bins were being collected. You were seeing rats and stuff on the streets, and you know, it sometimes gets to that point where people are so. Can you compare this to anything that you know?
2: you should. It's funny you should talk about the winter of discontent because that was my first winter at nursery. I grew up in Nottingham and I can always remember like when my mum went to register me at nursery and I think that was my first insight into sociology because I kept asking why is there so much rubbish on the ground and all this that and the other and you know I, I think I, I mean I think that is a that is a tipping point in some ways it feels to me a little bit like the 30s as well mm. Because, you know, there are certain, if you look back in history, there are certain things that were sort of like trying to be repressed in terms of different, um, you know, different perspectives, you know, different, you know, people's books. I'm not saying that people's books are being burnt or anything like that, but like, you know, groups being further marginalized. So that in some ways, it reminds me of that. But then it also reminds me of 1981 as well. So exactly 40 years ago, because it- No. Yeah, you know, what I mean, because it feels it just feels like people are getting angry because they can see what's going on. Like, you know, the economy is going to it's going to pop. So, like, you know, you think about it then, you know, we were in a re- recession when Margaret Thatcher came in. Her popularity was so low because of the way that, you know, that she's led things and groups are being marginalized. So I think there's that. I mean, I think even like uh, with the way that the policing is going again, just look. I mean, OK, it is black people, but it's everyone now. Do you know what I mean? So people are not happy with, with the policing. People are not happy with the economy. Then you've got the pandemic and everything and the lockdowns on top of that. So to me, in my lifetime, this is what it feels like it resonates with. But then there are some aspects of it that's a little bit too too close to how things were sort of like in the early 1930s. And I
1: think <laughs> I find, in sorry Elaine, go ahead. I was going to say I definitely have to echo about the 1981 um, where you can now start to see that different parts of the country are starting to go on and catch fire and the fact that Bristol is one of those. um, I went to university in Bristol, I lived around the corner at one point um, from where the Bristol riots took place. Um, In London, um, obviously we were marching last summer, um, I really don't like calling it the Black Lives Matter moment because I think that we've we have um, every time America has four or, or, or gone out on marches, we in the UK have done. So we went out and March of Black Lives Matter before. I don't, I think though, that because I'm going to use another reference, we're living in the Thanos Blip. If you watch any Marvel films, you'll know what I'm talking about. The five years where we can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. That's why people are basically having to stop and listen and um, basically take a pause and why you're seeing older people going out for marches, because that that age of being 16, 17, 18 is the age when you're starting to get a bit more of an awakening, regardless of whichever generation that, that we're in, because you're you're starting to understand. More about yourself and more about what's right, what's wrong. So mm-hmm. that will be 1981. It could be 1985. It could be just after. Um, uh, was it when 2011 as well? When mm-hmm. when they had the more recent Tottenham riots. But then again, you also had the students when I was. I think I was working at the Home Office at the time when they demonstrated because I think mm-hmm. rioting is very. um is a very divisive word, but when they were demonstrating about the introduction of the tuition fees and the removal of the EMAs. So those guys are now actually working, paying their their fees and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I think getting more politically awakened and challenging these guys, the the, the ones in authority, is, is a good thing. It's just a question of how, I can't even say it's a question of how it's done. Um, Because when I was taught at school about the women's right to vote, that came because obviously the suffragettes were sitting in their house reading books and crocheting. Nobody was throwing themselves under horses. No one was on hunger strikes. No one was demonstrating outside parliament. They were just doing it very nicely and demurely in those nicely corseted dresses. Um, And the fact that the government um is now trying to introduce more laws to curtail those protesting when these women were held up as being beacons for their rights is it's actually mind-blowing yeah
2: Um, can i just say something also on the back of what elaine said there so like you know for instance what you what the way that you were taught at school and what you were taught at school about you know the women's movement also like one other thing I would say is like the resistance against colonialism, you know, we didn't hear anything about that, all we heard was that, okay, we're just a colonized group. But, you know, there's, there's in the sociology of education, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's called the hidden curriculum whereby, you know, you, you on the one hand, you're taught about like, you know, dominant things that are seen as kind of, you know, dominant societal boundaries that, that are seen as kind of unifying everyone. Like, for instance, there was a women's movement but then and again, you know, you're not actually taught the nuances. And I think one, with a hidden curriculum, the reason why you're not taught the nuances is because it will make people start to challenge things. But I think now we've gone past that. People are starting to challenge things anyway. You know what I mean? They're starting to challenge things. And also in terms of like, you know, the years, I'm just thinking of the poll tax. I remember the old poll tax right, um, in 1990 and stuff, and that was just over one thing, all right? So like now I'm just thinking that, okay, people are angry over multiple things and plus they've been locked down after a while. This summer's going to be interesting. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. I kind of think it's quite uh, disheartening as well, though. You have that Black Power documentary that came out last week. Did everybody watch it? BBC One. Uh, and quickly, before I just yeah. go to this point, um, Aisha's here. Say hi, Aisha, sorry. Aisha. Hi, Aisha. Hi, sorry, everyone. No, it might have been me, Aisha. I've been doing these calls all night. No, it's fine my phone
4: was downstairs i was just eating lunch and i came back upstairs and i was like oh my god and i'm really gutted because i know i missed out on like 45 minutes of pure I... fire but the good thing is i can't wait to listen it's like an episode i haven't been of, so i'm gonna be like the first one on
0: the listen so it's great Hi everyone yeah um yeah but we we have this report that's come out i'm pretty sure I don't think they would be even that calculated to, to have timed it, but you have a really inspirational documentary that has come out with um, Steve McQueen has executive produced, it's, it's like a factual set of documentaries that's come out to complement small acts and um, they, they showed the importance of protests and they showed, um, you know, what was going on, what was getting um, black people, it was like the rise and fall of the, the black power movement basically, in England, and Linton Kwesi Johnson had said something which um, Funke had um, alluded to earlier, not alluded to, you said it straight out, what am I talking about, you um, basically had said, he said Black Lives Matter need to go and learn about us and learn about our successes and um, learn, you know, what, what we we achieve. But I also would add, we also need to, to learn about what went wrong and stuff like that. So I mean, just simply from, I mean, I mean, okay, you're, you've got a legal background. Um, mm. Do you think this bill will pass, this policing bill?
3: I think it will, unfortunately, um, because of the democracy that we have, the, the model that we operate and the Tory majority, it, it will. Mm. Um, and also we don't have a strong opposition. And I know you've talked about that at length on this. <laughs> this show and the house of lords aren't going to be able to do a great deal to stop it either so unfortunately i think it will pass but and again i like to be i like to have a a solution you can see i I don't want to just get stuck in where things are going wrong i think you know the, the wider justice system like the role of lawyers you know lawyers are all fired up for this i mean everyone i know who works in human rights is constantly challenging Mm. all aspects of this you know curtailing of of our powers you know judicial reviews another thing that's being looked at and narrowed down and that's our ability to challenge public authority decisions I mean Mm. that is a really important right and the government is looking at changing that but there's a huge swirl of opposition I'm personally involved through the law society in making sure that does not happen Mm. so I just want anyone who's watching this to realize there is a lot going on behind the scenes you know it's um we're not blind to some of the ramifications of all of this you know but these are troubling times you know they are they Uh, are troubling times
0: and uh sorry go ahead because
1: i was i was going to say though with the bill um so far from my understanding it's only just gone into second reading which is and so you've still got the committee stage the third reading before it goes to the house of lords and first, second, third reading committee stage before it comes back. So what I imagine will happen is that in the committee, the Home Affairs Select Committee, I believe will be because it's a Home Office bill, Mm. is that as it's not, um, that's not the government, those Mm. are MPs who are going to scrutinize every single clause. And so they might start to water down some of the more stringent parts what then will happen is that it's going to probably go back ping pong back with government ministers and they'll try to add their bits back in and then bits will get watered down and then it will become it will become a bit of a tussle and I say that on with my experience of working on a different government bill where um, that was during the labour time um, and it's actually really quite strange because The Conservatives then and the Liberal Democrats were very much for civil liberties. And the bill that I was working on at the time was the ID cards bill. And so ID cards came into into, into, um, being. And then David Cameron and um, the Deputy Prime Minister, they made it a party manifesto commitment for both of them, that they would actually scrap the ID cards bill. Did it matter that billions had been put into it? and the bill was also watered down from what the original intent from the Labour government was so if the democracy works with all the other checks and balances uh, hopefully bits will get taken out. There is uh,
0: yeah sorry I was going to say because I'm just checking the net we had um Jane Ozan on last week who um was part of the LGBT mm. um, advisory committee. She's one yeah. of the ones that quit. And she was saying there are struggles behind the scenes. Like um, Funke has said, don't worry, like there's lawyers and stuff who are really mm. arguing, you know, because we are trying to give people help, hope as well. And there are people, you know, like even LGBT Tories who said, absolutely not, you're really trying to to make things worse for a lot of people. But then we had also had Mikey Walsh on last week. I don't know if you know him, he's best-selling- Yeah, yeah, GRT, yeah. Yeah, the GRT community. Even if it goes through these committees and these bits, who's gonna speak for them? So what would you advise um, Funke, like if they want their voices heard? Because, you know, we were trying to say, what do we do? And he's in a state about it, he's depressed because their whole way of life is gonna disappear. What do you do if you're from a group that doesn't have a voice, you're not lawyers, you're not, who's gonna, what do you do at ground level?
3: Mm. You will still be able to find lawyers who are willing to to take on, I know so many lawyers who who do this type of work. So, you know, justice is still there to be had. It's just a lot more painful, unfortunately, when there's so many more barriers for you to access it. But there will be, there will be lawyers, solicitors who, you know, I know someone personally who does a lot of work in this area as a lawyer, Um, and there are many, many others who do that as well. So there's no getting away from the role that lawyers actually have to play in in things like the law itself and how it (laughs) would play a really important part in that, and that's what gives me hope, really. Yeah.
4: Um, Aisha, did you want to say something? Uh, Actually, it was back to something that Elaine was saying about the bill. I feel like, and we see it all the time with this government, they do something that's outrageous. They, they announce policy that's absolutely outrageous and then they just see what they can get away with mm-hmm. and so they've put this, they've just gone all guns blazing actually completely undermined democracy and then they're just like well actually we'll repeal that because nobody really wanted to build that extreme but within that there'll be things that, because you can't fight everything all the time mm-hmm. and that's how it works and so the idea is always to exhaust the people doing the great work that Funke is doing, the people that are doing the great work that Elaine is doing the idea is that we can't all fight all fronts all the time sorry totally undermining the hope you gave us (laughs) i can't help it i'm a doomsayer but you know what i mean it feels like that's what it feels like with every single policy the judicial review and there's how many fights can we all have all day every day and then by the way they're not structurally racist and it's just like i I woke up today and i was like now what am i going to be pissed off about today because there's just so much the yeah. filing cabinet. And it—and I feel like that's actually part of policy to say we're completely outrageous. Everyone would think that's outrageous, but eventually you're worn down. And you know, the, the stages you were talking about, Elaine, how many do they go through before people, before Bristol aren't protesting, before people can't afford to do as much pro bono work? Like where, you know, when does it stop? You see what I mean? There must be, that feels like kind of the point. So
2: Ayesha, can I ask you a question then? So is yes. it- is it in a weird way a kind of threat because, like, you know, it looks like okay, well, this is what we're going to do, and then it will just make everybody I don't know, like shake everybody up or whatever, and then in the end, they don't do it. Do you know what I mean? But just to, to, just, to just to shake everyone up, do you, do you think that could be what it is? I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of things.
4: One, it, I mean, it sounds like from what I've read that in terms particularly of the police bill, this is Cressida Dix doing, she's wanted this, she's wanted this for a long time, and. I can't believe that woman's been allowed so much power. She's you know, this John Charles de Menezes thing, she should have been gone, she'd have been gone from public office instead of promoted, which is of course, but we know racism pays. Um, I don't know. Actually, I think this government and um you know the Dominic Cummings strategy, the way that he is the way that he runs his political offices is go as far as you can and then repeal it, see where you can get. So I don't know. I think they would take every single clause of this bill if they could. I don't actually think there's somebody like, oh no, it's a bit much. I think they take
0: it. They'll take digestion review. The or limiting of it, definitely. I agree. I think so. I think when we had Clive Lewis on the show, I said this government is like my four-year-old. So she knows I do these Zoom calls and I have to do all my work, training, and comic gigs online and stuff. So while she's while I'm doing this, she knows I can't really do much. So she'll be next door smashing the place up, and it's like she does as much as she can before she hears me coming off that call and I can go and actually do something. It feels like a really destructive, uh, destructive government and. I, I just feel like um, um, there's been such an assault on so many areas. So like um, I was speaking today at lunchtime to this company and I was talking about, um, they asked me about comedy um, and you know, it being white male dominated and stuff. I said, even comedy has been affected. I mean, we have a director general who has come in, who is a former conservative um, parliamentary candidate, who is a massive conserv- uh, party donor I believe the figure's 400 k He's come in, got the director's general job, and come and said, left wing comedians out. And the big joke of it there really if you're left wing comedian, you're not on TV anyway. You're saying Which one? Which, which left wing comedian? <laughs> there's, there's <nothing. laughs> I mean, if you think that, you know, calling saying, oh, Boris's hair is messy is left wing, it's not. It goes deeper than that. So there really isn't. You know, you, could, you saw the barometer during the Corbyn years. You saw yeah. the fact that you had a really genuinely left-wing guy and look at how the comedians joined in going off on him. But there feels like it has been an assault. Like I had to record something for Channel 4 last year and you get a social media behavioural yeah. policy um, that you have to sign now. I didn't sign it. Um, I managed to get away with not signing it. But I was just like, you know, well, if you're now controlling artists. Like Louise, you mentioned before burning books and stuff, but I don't think we're that far off. And I know it sounds crazy, but you've now got Gary Lineker. Do you hear Gary Lineker talking about refugees anymore? Mm. No, because they made it very clear that he has to sign a social media behaviour policy. You have BBC presenters who laughed about a flag and they, uh, you know, and then you have Hugh, I can't remember his last name, the Welsh uh, yeah. news presenter yeah. that was told to take a picture of himself with the Welsh flag down. Like also, talking, Black Lives not, Matter and Pride badges, not yeah. allowed. They're holding, like, yeah, people's what jobs is that? them. You've got, you know, I really do feel it's an attack on so many fronts. And I feel like what Aisha said as well, you you, you get to the point where, which part are we going to fight? Like, I'll just cho- choose, you know, we tell our kids, choose a battle. But it just feels like, you know... It's bare minimum, and from a sociological point of view,
2: what would you say? Well, I mean, I think I think you're so right there, and and uh, and you know, so there's two things that I was thinking of when you were saying. So, I don't know. Again, I'm just thinking back to using Emil Durkheim again, another sociologist. Sorry, all this name dropping, but that's the only way I can think about it. One of the things that he says is he says that. You know like the, in, they say that the education system is very much a microcosm of society so it reflects what's going on in society but i think it goes beyond that i think it goes into society as a whole so like all the different institutions but like i also think it's a two-way thing so like you know what is going again what is going on on the ground people's attitudes are being reflected in the media but then the police the media is kind of playing off of that because as you've seen people are not hiding their racism Sexism, classism, or anything anymore, and stuff like that. So it, they're playing off of each other. The other thing I was oh no, I've just lost the other point that I was going to say. I've lost it. Um, damn, I've lost, I've lost, I've lost. We can it. come back. he will come back to you. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. You. no, don't worry because that's how it is. Though honestly, this is it in action. Choosing a battle, like you want to do it all, and then you forgot what you're going to say.
2: Oh god, come on, go on. Yeah, I remembered. I remembered. So. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it's almost like setting off little bombs, isn't it, here, there, and everywhere, and stuff like that. So you see one going off here on your left foot, and then another one in the right, and and then it's just like, where do you run? So it's almost like, you know, you're just being bombarded with all this stuff that is going on, that, like, you're right, it it, you know, like, it's intersectional issues, that it's very, very difficult to know which one to fight. So because you're trying to sort of, like, you know, you're, you're running away from these bombs all over the place, you are knackered. Do you know what I mean? You're knackered, so you can't fight anything. So I think that there's a lot of bombard. I mean, obviously these issues are very, very rich because they're just kind of hitting us at once. But then you've also got the media as well playing a role and stirring things up again. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's making it very, very difficult. It's wearing people out. It is wearing, as you're saying, Aisha, it's wearing people out. So then it gets to the point where you can't fight and then they've won. Yeah.
4: Um, I was just going to come back on that and agree and I think that there's there's levels aren't there because because of well the intersection of people's oppressions or where they sit in society so if you're a white woman you're just a bit annoyed about this bit mm. if you are a black woman you're a bit annoyed about this if you're a gay black man you're a bit annoyed. if you're a disabled just a GRT member like and so at some point and certainly I feel like there's a uh, mixed black women with a mixed race son, um, with Asian members of my family, with disabled, the, the there's a lot of things. And also, just someone who gives a shit. Like, there's, sometimes there's just that, because there are plenty of white able bodied people who just give a shit too. I mean, there are, I've like met one or two, like, you know, but. you know. <laughs> But you know what I mean they exist and and they're but for some of us it's actually our lives so it's not just the exhaustion of just being like actually I care about that even though it doesn't affect me it's that if this doesn't if I don't fight this it's going to have negative to fatal effects for me and
0: my loved ones and that is tiring. Yeah. That's a good point Aisha. I really think that's a good point and I want the viewers to pick up on that and um, really think about that going forward I know we've probably got very left leaning audience anyway, apart from that one man who comments under everything, I'm going to block you from YouTube as soon as I find out how to do it. But apart from him, who just watches to get like a rise and like, you know, write all kinds of nonsense. um, I think it's very much um, the policy we have to have as people going forward is, and then they came for me. You Mm. might not care about the GRT. But, you know, I honestly think that is what we have to do, because like you said, there are things in it that affect different people different ways. And if you've noticed the amendments that um, I'm on the name thing today. Evette Cooper, Cooper.
4: known for her, um, uh, yes, equalities and, you know,
0: women, the amendments she's making are for white women. It's like, oh, we'll bring this in. Then basically it's. You know, after the Sarah Everard protest, and you know, it's to quiet, quieten down those centrist white women types. Then they're not going to object about the bill. But I think everyone needs to understand that fight against the whole entire thing because it is—it's absolutely dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I want everybody, because I did a talk this morning um, from a guy who's a viewer. He follows me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Hello, Basil. Um, who basically almost heckled me on my talk to him. He went you've got this thing called Black Woman's Hour, then you go onto YouTube and it's one hour 20, one hour this, I was like, we're still black, okay? Was that basil, basil hour, Which isn't quite an hour, but we are trying to get it back down. So I just want to leave with comments um, from, from everybody. I'll um, be my closing comment, but Funke, what would you say? Can we put, um, so just quickly for somebody who I know is very upset, who is one of our guests, Mikey Walsh, um, would, your lawyer friend be interested in hearing any from the GRT community at all in any kind of way?
3: Yeah there are a number I can send through the details of the yeah. specific, okay. um, absolutely I'm very happy to do that. Yeah
0: and so sorry go ahead Before, like, is there any point you want to leave us with or?
3: Yeah I guess it's to not lose hope you know um change great change comes from disturbing circumstances right you don't see change happening unless things have completely the rug's been pulled from under your feet Society appears to be falling down. You know, history shows that. I think it just brings everything out. People are outraged, they're angry. And I've seen time and again that this has led to change. So that's what I just want to leave everyone with really.
0: Yeah, it's like Malcolm X said, isn't it? Like the oppressor doesn't voluntarily give you your rights. You've got to take them. So, um, Elaine?
1: Um, I was going to leave with the fact that I'm glad that um, they've realized that BAME doesn't work it's going to be very interesting as they, um, now that they're embracing British African as a term, um, to start to see what the kind of disparities that we have even within what they consider to be an African community is. Um, as I mentioned, I think on my first time that I was here, that Ghana, the Ghanaian experience is gonna be very different from somebody from South Africa or somebody from Kenya or somebody from Morocco. We are all, African. um, And those of us from West Africa might have more similarities with people who come from the Caribbean, or maybe not. Um, I don't necessarily have the similarities as some of the more prominent Nigerian people that we've mentioned earlier on. Um, But we are from the um, Commonwealth or the former Empire. Um, And my other last words is that you guys need to keep on doing what you're doing and as I tweeted this morning that people need to support and I'm loving the fact that I think I've been in here nearly as many times as you and I have a This is Hampshire. your third one,
0: this is your third, you yeah. are our most featured guest. I but, no, I think we've had uh, Taz, Jasmine uh, Kunji. He's, the boy Lima Begum. He's been on twice but we're gonna have him back again.
1: Uh, and, and, and so, thank you very much. Um, thank you for giving um, Black women in the main a voice um, in the UK, and I wish you all well. And that is the good message and hope. And thank you, thank Louise. You. Okay.
2: Well,
1: you know, for, again, thank you for having me on. I have really
2: chuffed actually when I got this and stuff. And thank you to my cousin as well for kind of like bringing me on here, man. Big, big love to you. Um, I think my, you know, I, I'm just thinking about something that my younger brother said, like, a couple of years ago. He goes, the next four to five years are going to be very interesting. And he was bang on the money there, right? And I think he, uh, I think my my thing is that I, I'm I'm with Funke in that we don't want to be losing hope because, like, this is hard time. This is the worst, like, political and social time I've ever seen in my lifetime. But it's, we don't want to, you know, lose hope. I, the way I see it, it's just like, you know those snow globes, I always have to you know image things but the snow globes where it looks like it's calm for a while but then you have to shake it up but eventually it becomes calm again and I feel like you know that is what's gonna happen I feel like you know woke people like us you know um you know like with the next generation coming up because I teach a lot of them and they're not keeping quiet about things you know and Mm -hmm. I love that so you know we've got that coming up you know the the I mean and even though last year has been crap I mean the last couple of years have been absolutely crap but people have not you know people have long memories so they'll remember it and hopefully this will bring about change in terms of you know voting but more broadly in society so out of the pessimism no I'm going to use another quote from my dad little raindrops make a mighty river that like you know the little raindrops of change you know like eventually it will lead to a mighty river so that's that's my thought.
0: I love that. And that's that. beautiful. And Aisha, we didn't hear
4: much from you. Sorry. Oh, yeah. no, no, don't be silly. Not at all. I was um, not going to add anything because I'm always pessimistic. So I thought I'd leave it um, on the yeah, right. we'll leave you, Aisha. <laughs> Thank you very much. What did you have for lunch? That's probably something. That's probably that um, I had salmon <laughs> and salad, and I'm on my way for another sea swim right now. I was in twice yesterday. Oh,
1: that's right. Wow.
0: We about Aisha's going swimming in the sea. Um, oh, we were going crazy. to revoke her black woman card, so she's in the in <laughs> and and she started in know. February
4: with a wetsuit. Now I go without a wetsuit. all the blackness is gone. It's gone. It's
1: gone. Is this <laughs> scene that you're swimming in Is it the Caribbean Sea because I yeah. don't oh,
4: it's the channel.
2: <laughs>
1: oh
4: oh, wow. You just walk in there. I do wear gloves and I wear booties. Um yeah. at
2: least you're gonna come back with your limbs because like if you go in the Thames, you know, you come back and there'll be nothing left because that water is <laughs> <right. laughs> ladies, thank you so much. It was a really short notice show. Thank you so much
0: for joining us. And to get such an amazing panel, we have to like when we get bigger, right, and we, we're going to start doing this live and doing some question time type shows and stuff. When we start doing that, I think Elaine's going to be our booker because this is just an amazing lineup. Thank you so much. Ladies, just stay on so we can say a quick goodbye to you, but we're going to say goodbye, viewers. Thank you very much. And p- goodbye, listeners, if you're on Spotify. So thank you for joining Bye. us. Bye. Coming. Subscribe, please subscribe.